Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Welcome to the lift. Get ready to take a ride. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to Season 4, Episode Number 1 of The Lift. That's right, we're officially back for Season 4, with all new stories, exciting new characters and voice actors, and a special overarching story this season that will play out across multiple episodes. Also, thanks to our supporters on Patreon, we're back to 20 episodes again this season. You might remember we only had 11 last season. This season we're back up to 20, and if you'd like to help us keep the lift in working order, you can support Victoria at patreon.com forward slash Victoria's Lift. A quick reminder that we do have a written anthology available on Amazon in print and Kindle. We're very proud of it, and it features all new stories by some of your favorite authors from the show, as well as beautiful illustrations and other great extras. Show your love for the show by getting one for yourself, and maybe even introduce a friend to Victoria by getting a copy for them, too. To get the book on Amazon, head to victoriaslift.com forward slash read. That'll take you right to the page. Now, to kick off today's episode, we have an amazing tale written by an author new to the lift, Christopher Long. If you enjoy the story, and I know you will, why not follow him on Twitter under the handle CJLongChris, or on Facebook at PlotMonkey, or both. Also, treat yourself to his novel, Fluff, available in print and Kindle at Amazon.com. Now, without further ado... It's time for Half the Mirage is Mirror, a story scored by the incomparable Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams, and told by Erica Sanderson, Kareem Cronfley, and starring Amber Collins as our girl Victoria. Oh, by the way, happy birthday, Amber. You're one of my favorite people, and I hope your birthday was fantastic. Now, let's go for a ride. I have lost so much. My name is Victoria. I am bound to this place, charged with guiding those who must choose. Don't be afraid. I can never again be the little girl I was. Will you accept your fate or change it? I have my music box and a library lost. But I sometimes feel very alone. Won't you join me? It's time for your ride on the lift. <laughs> Don't be afraid. This morning, like every morning, the clock chases me out of bed. Muscle memory reaching my arm past the covers, switching off the alarm. Then my legs are steering. 
turning me over, standing me up, hauling me towards the bathroom. Life wasn't always like this. There was a time when I spelt up my intentions under neon-stained shadows, speaking in smoke rings and washing down my sins with sour cocktails. I faced the darkness back then, but normally only because it got in my way. It turns out a selfish life peppered with some supernatural problem-solving can be mistaken for heroism from the wrong angle. People never understood that I was living out my own socially complicated trick shot back then. Of course, that life came at a cost. I burned every bridge before stranding myself here. Nowadays, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do much of anything. I'm living in a holding pattern. I get up, I get showered, I get dressed. I always plan for breakfast, but rarely manage more than a coffee. Then it's out the front door and off to Sadie's cafe. I run the dishwasher there. It's not much, but it pays the bills and I'm left to my own devices. Although I might need to watch that. More than once recently, Sadie has walked in on me and looked at me like I was a stranger. This morning, still bleary-eyed, something strikes me as wrong about my cramped terrace house. The thought invades my senses like leaking sewage. My home isn't a home at all. It's an illusion. A space between homes. The kink at the end of the landing is unnatural. My bedroom is too narrow. My lounge serves as some perverse echo chamber for the street, while my bathroom isn't the same height as any other room in the house. Suddenly I can see every street past my front door, all becoming part of this grander maze, circling in on themselves, forming an ingrowing world where every town on a road sign is just another lie. The unwelcome claustrophobia nearly drives me to my knees, cold sweat dappling my sleep-creased flesh. I have to fight to tramp the fear down, chalking it up as a ghostly fingerprint of my careless youth. Washed, dressed and caffeinated, I pull on my shoes and go to grab my coat. There, beneath it, is my old overcoat. Dad's coat, originally. Still scuffed with love bites from the city. Cigarette burns, fast food stains, greasy, blushing bruises from bus shelter seats and cold alleyway walls. One pocket at half-mast. I try it on. The familiar weight on my shoulders quickly brings back the good old days. A cigarette between my lips, the filter turning tacky with shoplifted lipstick. Stepping down some back street with a fresh problem lodged in my craw. This coat used to feel like armour then. Now it hangs off me, the wear and tear palpable on both of us. I hug it close, stirring that long dead version of myself. I'd forgotten her scent. Red wine and wet winter pavements. My hand dives into a pocket, retrieving a battered pack of cigarettes. You're kidding! All those bottomless nights spent pacing around this house, Patches pasted to my arm and gum worked to flavourless pulp between my jittery jaws. And I still had a pack in my coat. 
I flip the lid. My trusty old lighter looks back at me, the casing glinting in the early daylight glare. The inscription lingers, barely visible, cut spring ice thin, for fighting fires. Sure enough, there's one smoke left. I swiftly push it back into my pocket. Maybe later. I head out the door, locking it behind me, the coat making me believe I've slipped back in time. The old walk returns in a heartbeat, eyes down, hands deep, feet at an angry stride. Cutting down the narrow alley that descends into town, I try not to breathe too deeply as I pass the graffiti and discarded takeaways, the torn betting slips and abandoned job pages. These dark brick walls aren't helping my head. It's like I woke up in someone else's skin today. I'm so distracted that I barely have time to realise my footsteps aren't alone in the fractious hush. Someone's coming up the other way, exhaustion buckling them to the rusty handrail. My fist tightens around the weak cigarette pack as they approach. He's old. The blush of fatigue running rampant. He barely looks up as I pass. He's dressed too smart for this place. An expensive coat designed to give the impression of nature walks and hiking boots that have never once touched mud. A leather satchel hangs off one shoulder. A black fedora has been pushed back to allow a straining brow to cool. His painful breathing hooks my conscience. I linger over his shoulder. You alright? He nods, but doesn't speak. One hand is already further along the rail, waiting to heave him further up his fingers gripping it tight to keep him standing. I can see the tips and joints turning crimson, his body heaving as he sucks down air. You sure? Most people can do this without looking like they're ascending Everest. He slowly turns to face me. His glare could burn holes. Fair enough. Suit yourself. I've barely stepped away before he calls after me. Wait. (coughs) I'm looking for someone. But I've gotten myself lost. I walk closer. (coughs) Curiosity still my favourite vice. Who are you looking for? An old friend. You sure you want them to see you? Like this? Those eyes singe my clothes again. Never mind. He turns and pushes on. Thanks to our little encounter, I end up late for work and twitchy. Sadie, for her part, either doesn't notice or doesn't care. It's maybe an hour into my shift when I spot the familiar-looking black hat sitting on a table by the window. Sure enough, there he is, hunched over a mug of tea, a half-finished bowl of chilli pushed aside. I load the dishwasher and grab a tray, heading out with the pretense of clearing tables so I can give him both barrels. Only Sadie blocks my way. By the time she's shifted, he's long gone. Damn it. For the rest of the day, I keep catching sight of him. His satchel on the floor, his coat draped over a chair. Only he's never there. His inescapable absence notches my unease up a gear. By the end of my shift, I'm festering. This is too much like the old days. Too many coincidences. Too many friends found overdosed in their beds. Too many bloodstains spotted on cemetery gates. I've been put in this maze before and left to run myself ragged until I stumble across my mouldy piece of cheese. Sure enough, charging back up the alley for home, 
I'm presented with my prize. There's a familiar figure sprawled over the ground, waiting for me. His black fedora skipping loose on the breeze. His hiking boots not so clean anymore. I race over, set my bag down and fumble for a pulse. Well, if it isn't Mr. Proverbial Bad Penny. He's barely breathing as his eyes creep open. Victoria? He slips back under, leaving the name to skitter across my skin like a late-night spider. I dig out my mobile and call an ambulance. After that, events are snatched out of my hands by some greedy phantom sibling. I remember the cigarette in my pocket snickering as I agree to ride in the ambulance, struggling to stay in my seat as the paramedics work on the man who's been haunting me all day. Arriving at the hospital so quickly that it seems more plausible to believe all the clocks are wrong. I follow his frail body until I'm unceremoniously handed his things and told to sit in the waiting room. There, time abruptly stops. I set his hat down. Everyone around me perching on the edge of the same event horizon. Beyond those heavy doors and a thin curtain. They each have someone being put back together again for them, if they're lucky. Some of these people will have to go home with a fresh empty seat in their car. Every hospital takes its toll. That's why I can't stand these places. All the calm smiles, platitudes and little rooms where you're taken to cry. All the pain kept at arm's length. It's another con. It's Humpty Dumpty. A smiling cartoon egg painted over the face of a terrible defeat. It takes some deep willpower to stop myself leaving. I could drag that cigarette down to the tip before I'm past the car park. Not that it'd do any good. Something tells me the old sod would just appear on my doorstep again, sprawled over the pavement in his hospital gown. The lift arrives, and announces its arrival with an old-fashioned rickety bell. Bored. I raise my head to watch the large, grey doors slide open. The space revealed behind them isn't exactly what I'd expected. It's older than it should be, decorated with a rusty sense of grandeur, looking as if it belongs in some ageing hotel. No one else seems to notice. No one else feels the cold, dead air seeping past those open doors. I've heard a lot of modern hospitals are basically new faces built over old bones. Is that what I'm seeing here? The little bell rings again. The doors rattle shut on the empty lift before it leaves us behind. And suddenly someone's playing dress up beside me. I didn't notice her sit down and pull the black fedora over her long blonde hair. Cute hat. It suits you. I rather like hats. Her voice scratches adorable little nails down my chalkboard spine. Although it might be a bit big for me. It's large enough to cover her eyes. She turns to look at me, the brim sitting over her little button nose. <laughs> like you in your coat. If we were going to start throwing stones, then I might say something about her antique get-up. The purple party dress and princess slipper shoes. I decide on a different tact. Where are your parents? Not here. I'm keeping a promise to an old friend. These words set my alarm bells dancing. I reach down and pluck the hat off her head. Her green eyes see too deeply. They look ancient compared to her chirpy, curious smile. I can hold his back if you like. I'm good at keeping things safe. I pinch the bridge of my nose. So, 
You're bored. You saw me come in with that man, and now you want to play a little game. Is that it? Hardly. Hospitals are no laughing matter. She takes the bag out of my hands and flips it open. It's a bit of a mess, but she easily reaches past the hip flask and scarf to find a notebook and waves it at me. I wonder what this could be. Not yours. Now put it back. Aren't you a little curious? Frowning, I snatch it off her and turn it over in my hand. Should have stayed in bed. Don't be a spoil sport. Take a peek. I can assure you, he won't mind. I play along, opening the book and reading the first page aloud. I'm keeping my promise to her as best I can. Patrick Mulgrave. Poor old Patrick. He wrote that in the front of every notebook. The little girl is peering over my shoulder like it's story time at the library. Not that he was fooling me. He was cheating and he knew it. I can be a little slow these days. Too many late nights. You're Victoria, aren't you? The little girl stood and did a little curtsy, just for me. Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes. She sits back down beside me and lays a cold little hand on my arm. I know all about you. Keep reading. I turn the page. My face drops. I jab a finger at the spidery scrawl. What's this? His last entry. It's me. My day. In detail. Was your old friend stalking me? Not not exactly. The strange little girl shifts awkwardly in her seat. So what was he doing? Exactly. Something incredibly important to him. I slam the book shut. No one so much as glances in our direction. Your friend's been dogging my footsteps all day, Victoria. Who is he? He was quite famous. A long time ago. But what? Stalking people? No, silly. He wrote comics. Rather horrid comics, really. All sarcasm, cigarettes and demons. Gory, too. But teenagers seem to like them. A little too much, as it turned out. She reads my displeasure before carrying on. You see, those comics made Patrick rich. And they made his main character a bit of a cult icon. The more attention he got, the more Patrick pushed the boundaries. One controversial storyline he released caused a rather confused fan to take their own life. When he found out about it, Patrick joked that it was good for sales. Talk of suicide has a way of cutting me to the bone. Jesus, that's some friend you've got there, Vicky. It's Victoria. And don't worry, he's not like that now. Not since he took a ride in my lift. My alarm bells become a storm warning. Victoria's grip tightens on my arm. Don't worry, I'm here to help you understand. Understand what? Why some sick old comic book writer has been stalking me? I look up. No one is watching us. No one is eavesdropping. They're miles out of reach. Something about this feels very, very wrong. Abby, wait! I pull away from my ghostly little playmate and stand, letting Patrick's notebook fall to the floor. I march over to the nearest person and wave a hand in front of their face. They don't hear me. Hello? They don't even blink. Hello? Excuse me? I try another and another. None of them notice I exist. When I turn to face Victoria, the sadness in her eyes knocks the fury from my sails. What's going on? All the best writing is basically lying. 
That's what Patrick told an interviewer once. All the best writing is basically lying. And all the best lies need a little truth. That's the problem. There's too much truth in you. What's that supposed to mean? Daintily, Victoria picks up the notebook and pats the seat next to her. Maybe it'll be easier if you let me read for a while. Out of options. I walk numbly back to my seat and sit beside her. Are you sitting comfortably? I nod, letting her play mother. Good, then I'll begin. Before she starts, she reaches down and gently opens a small music box I hadn't noticed sitting beside her. The tune is soft, kind, a lullaby. A dancing green light rises, making me think of absinthe and auroras. I don't question it. I watch as it drifts on tides that weave to her voice. Her story becomes a needle on the surf, unpicking the reality of the room, unspooling it until it softens to blank shadow. Candlelight rises, and I can see someone. Patrick Mulgrave, young and vain, standing in front of a small gathering of press and fans in his hotel room, playing the dark magician, securing his brand, twisting his fingers and reeling his words. Only his audience are too stoned or drunk to notice something I spot in a heartbeat. He's succeeding. Something is bleeding through the margins of reality. The candles dip. The room turns silent for Patrick and Patrick alone. Spooked in the gloom, he stumbles into a lift that never truly belongs where it stops, and she's waiting for him there. Victoria. She hasn't aged a day. I see the writer convinced he summoned a dead little girl, and I see her scolding him for daring to believe he has any control over where she goes. She takes him to the fifth floor of a building that sits on fidgeting foundations, to a room that isn't truly a room at all. None of these rooms are exactly what they seem. None of these corridors are as straight as they appear. There are corkscrews in the carpet here. There are windows that look out onto worlds that never were. There are dead ends which live up to their name without irony. This is a place caught in the moment of decision, balanced perfectly on the knife edge of consequence. Patrick's room appears huge until you understand half the mirage is mirror. Victoria asks him about a young girl in Indiana. Patrick laughs and tells her not to listen to the press. You're too young to understand. He does not notice that the little girl sticks her tongue out at him behind his back. When he demands to be let go, she points to a typewriter and asks him to tell her a story first. Patrick does as he's told, deciding to scare her. Only the mirror begins to offer a new reflection. Some young lad, alone in his bedroom... He's jerked to his feet like a strung puppet, a smile on his face as he replicates the worst of Patrick's stories. The writer can't stop the boy from hurting himself. No matter what he types, no matter how much he pleads, no matter how much he tries to tear his fingers away from the keys, the mirror splits, duplicates, over and over. The story won't stop. Soon, Patrick's faced with hundreds of young souls, all dancing to his tune, 
all speaking a name with their final breath. Abigail, they say. Abigail showed me the truth. My head splits open when I hear that. When the typewriter finally releases him, Patrick falls to his knees. He's exhausted, drained, wading through the innocent blood that ran from the myriad of mirrors. He can't see Victoria. He's alone and damned, or so he's allowed to think until the darkness shifts and the impossible place sets him free. It's lesson successfully over. The nightmares can start to pack themselves away again. Victoria closes the lid on the music box. We're back in the waiting room, alone. Do you understand now? Abigail showed me the truth. The words on the suicide note that drove me from my own home, years ago. I know this isn't easy. Her eyes betray her apparent youth. But he did change. He made his choice. He stopped the comic, started a charity. He changed so many lives, healed so many hearts. But he couldn't let his character from the comics die. You see, he lent her something precious to him. So he wrote her story every day, trying to give her a normal life. Not that he really knew what normal looked like. He just wanted to keep her safe. After all, he'd given her his daughter's name. He had a daughter. She hangs her head. For a little while. I feel sick. Why? Why are you here, Victoria? I told you, to keep a promise. She stands and dusts her dress off before picking up Patrick Mulgrave's hat and bag. She hands them to me. Only now do I notice his hat matches my coat. I think it's time I help you two say goodbye properly. She takes my hand and the hospital fades. The world re-knits and we're somewhere else. A small, dark room lit by lamplight. My skin feels different when I see Patrick Mulgrave slumped over his desk, barely breathing. He looks older in real life. Tired. A pen trembling in his liver-spotted hand. A notebook caught under its scratching nib. Victoria gently plucks the book free and hands it to me. What am I meant to do with this? That's up to you now. She leaves me alone with him. The man I met today, who wrote every thought I've ever had. My proxy father, my protector, my editor, the ghost who made me late for work this morning at the job he created just for me. When I speak his name, he smiles. When I hold his hand, a tear runs down his cheek. After he's passed, Victoria places a hand on my shoulder. Time to go. I stand on shaky legs. Go where? Somewhere you'll be happy. I guess that was your promise then. Yes, in a way. As we leave, an old woman rushes in and weeps over him. She doesn't see us. She never notices one of the doors in her house has been replaced by an antique lift. Victoria speaks to the lift, 
patting its walls as she steps inside. You know, he nearly got you right. It answers with a rattle as the doors slide shut. The grieving widow never hears the door, or Victoria reprimand me for lighting my cigarette. I shrug as we set off. What? It's not my fault. My dad taught me some bad habits. 